When I was a teenager, I persuaded my parents to let me purchase a moped. In Indiana, you had to be 15 years old in order to ride one, and my birthday had just occurred. And so looking back, I realized it was a minor miracle that my parents let that happen because my mom was one of those health and safety mothers at all costs. For those of you who have little idea what a moped is, and you don't see nearly as many of them anymore, uh, they are what Wikipedia calls a low-power, lightweight, motorized bicycle. This is under 50 cc, and it can top out at 30 miles an hour going downhill. But for a boy, this was like having total freedom on a racing machine. One Saturday, I was riding my moped with uh, the other gang of 15-year-olds. Uh, boys who had their moped but didn't yet have their driver's license. And we were riding there in Indiana near Grace College where both of my parents worked. And we came up on one particular intersection where the uh, boy in front of me plowed right through the stop sign and kept going. Uh, I slowed down to an almost stop at the stop sign and then proceeded across. There was a motorcycle, a real one, coming my way, but it was a long way off, and I thought nothing of it. On Monday afternoon, my father came home from work, and he requested to have a one-on-one conversation with me, which was never a good sign. He reported that there was a faculty colleague uh, who had come into his office uh, as the academic dean. And the faculty member reported that one of my father's sons had, quote, blown through a stop sign and endangered him and other drivers. And hearing that compelling story, my father consulted with my mother, and I was grounded from my moped for the next month. That might as well have been for eternity, as one of my friends says when he grounds his children, until the end of time. My life of teenage pleasure ended that day, and I was hot because this was totally unfair. This was the epitome of an unjust world. My life was over. Fairness is a big topic in our home, maybe yours as well. All of our kids show great potential as criminal defense attorneys, fully capable, at least in their own minds, of defending their innocence and and prosecuting the case against their siblings. The guilt, the preferential treatment that the rest of them get that I don't. None of them has ever actually said, you know, I'm the one who's been treated most leniently by mom and dad. All of them think that all the others have it easier. They believe, oh yeah, in justice and fairness, and they are convinced that they have not received it. And they speak for all of us, don't they? None of us think that life is fair or just. The question, though, is, what are we supposed to do about that? Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 140. Today we come to our second to last week in our series in the Psalms called Then Sings My Soul. And we're examining the most common genres or types of psalms in the Hebrew hymn book. So far we've seen praise psalms, thanksgiving psalms, confession psalms, royal or enthronement psalms, lament psalms last week, next week wisdom psalms, and this week imprecatory 
psalms. Now that word imprecatory might be a new one to you, but the basis of it in the psalms is not at all. Because all of us have prayed for or thought of imprecations on other people. It's what happens when we get mad, when we, when we feel vengeance, when we've been wronged. An imprecation is a curse that invokes misfortune upon someone. And so in the biblical examples, uh, the psalmist calls down a calamity, destruction, God's anger and judgment upon his enemies. The imprecatory psalms communicate a deep longing for God's justice. And the question as we read these psalms is, may we do that too? Days ago, I uh, read an amusing reminder of how often we can misappropriate the imprecatory psalms. Uh, this is from the Babylon Bee, if you've heard of that online. The title said, Local Family Inadvertently Prints Imprecatory Psalm on Christmas Cards. Quote, according to the sources, the Fuller family mistakenly selected a violent imprecatory psalm as their verse for this year's Christmas card, mailed to all of their friends, family, and co-workers. The verse in question is Psalm 58, 6, which reads, O God, shatter their teeth, the teeth in their mouths. The trouble started when they chose to save time this year by uploading a family photo and Bible verse to an online service which automatically creates and mails a custom-designed Christmas card to the addresses provided. Quote, we decided on Psalm 86.8, but I must have made a mistake when I typed in the verse number I wanted them to print out on the cards, the horrified man said. Psalm 86.8 would have been great. Among the gods, there was no one like you. No deeds compare with yours. But instead, as you've seen, I got everyone wondering about the sick weirdos that we are. <laughs> the Fuller family, as the story goes, had made a colossal mistake. But as we'll see today... Our desire for justice is not a mistake. And as we all emphasize, our longing for justice is not wrong. It's actually God-given. Deep within us, deep within our souls, is this commitment to justice in life. We want wrongs to be righted. We want guilt to be punished. By the way, you don't have to teach kids to want this. Watch any preschool class. Watch any playground game, and you will see this inclination towards justice on full display. It's hardwired within them. The only exception, of course, as we get older, is that we tend to still want justice for others, but mercy for ourselves. We learn that over time as we see that we are often the ones wrong or guilty in need of help. So if it's true that the longing for justice in us is right, and our desire to see injustice punished is right, the question remains, what should we do? How do we square this God-given desire for justice with this experience of injustice in our lives and in our world? When we get angry, when we get disillusioned, when we are frustrated by injustice, especially the kind of injustice that other people show to us, what should we do? Should we pray curses on other people? Are we permitted to, to wish for their punishment? Those are the questions before us today as we look at the imprecatory psalms. And before we get started, it's worthwhile to highlight some of the tensions. First, we need to remember that as we look at the psalms here, uh, they're written in poetry. They're hymns, after all. 
and songs, poetry, is often addressed to people in very emotive terms, and that's true in the Psalms. So, so we need to exercise caution when we sometimes try to interpret every word of the psalm as if it has special meaning. Sometimes they're just words in Hebrew that fit, that rhymed. Sometimes the author is trying to say the same thing a little differently, a little more creatively. That doesn't mean it's any less inspired by God. The whole thing is. It just gives us some pause of trying to find hidden meaning sometimes there when it's not. Second thing, though, second tension, is that these psalms are prayers to God to vindicate himself, to display his righteousness for all the world to see. In these psalms, the psalmists are asking God to respond in divine ways. That They're not calling down curses on people for trivial matters. They They are asking God to act against those who hate him in very conscious ways. They're asking God to exercise his vengeance on those set up against him. They want God to act in concrete ways. And when we see God's response to human evil, when we want that, we're actually starting in the right place, even though our notions of when and how and to whom may sometimes be jaded, often they are. One more thing, and related, these psalms actually give us an outlet to express our dissatisfaction, our anger at injustice in the world. They they show us that apathy or resignation, or it is what it is, is not really the right response for someone who belongs to God. God gives us permission to express our emotions and even our frustrations. In their little book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, Stuart and Fee say this, the imprecatory psalms guide or channel our anger to and through God verbally rather than to or at anyone else, verbally or physically. Imprecatory psalms harness our anger and help us express it. Harness our anger and help us express it. Well put indeed. There are a whole lot of imprecatory psalms. If you've read the Hebrew hymn book, Depending on how you count, there are between 14 and 20 of these, a subset of the Lament Psalms. And I've chosen Psalm 140 as a standard, understandable, and I think beneficial psalm for us to understand this whole set. Stand with me if you would. We're going to read Psalm 140 and then work quickly through that and see how we understand the psalms, the imprecatory psalms in general. Psalm 140, the Bible says, Rescue me, Lord, from evildoers. Protect me from the violent, who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Keep me safe, Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from the violent, who devise ways to trip my feet. The arrogant have hidden a snare for me. They have spread out the cords of their net and have set traps for me along my path. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Hear, Lord, my cry for mercy. Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer, you shield my head in the day of battle. Do not grant the wicked their desires, Lord, and do not let their plans succeed. Those who surround me proudly rear their heads. May the mischief of their lips engulf them. May burning coals fall on them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits never to rise. 
May slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down the violent. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live in your presence. Thanks, you may be seated. Thank you for honoring God's word in that way. If you have your outline, you can pick it up on the way here, gracepolaris.org guide, or you can print it out as we send it to your email. You'll follow along that there's kind of a, a yin and yang to what David says here. There's a back and forth. There's a prayer, and then there is a, a trust. There is a prayer, and then there is a confidence, and we see that here. First of all, his first prayer, verses 1 to 5, a prayer for seeing evil, for God to see evil. Now, in most of the Psalms, unfortunately for us, we don't have a lot of historical background, and sometimes we have none. In other words, we don't know from where the psalmist speaks. Sometimes we don't even know who the psalmist is, and the historical context eludes us. But if you think about it, that's actually true in our hymn book as well. I have a hymn book here, and for most of the hymns, we have the actual author of the lyrics, but for very few of them, do we actually know what was happening in his or her life, what circumstances caused him or her to write that. And that's true of the Psalms in the scriptures. And yet there's power in the words, even if we don't know the context of their lives. That doesn't mean we can't wish for more context, but it does mean that we ought to read the words on the page as if they're the word of God because they are. In this particular psalm, a good number of scholars think that David is actually defending himself from the pursuits of Saul and those who would seek David's demise. This goes back deep into the Old Testament when Saul thought David to be a threat to his kingship. We don't know that, though. We're guessing here. Here's what we do know. David is calling out to God to intervene on his behalf. David is experiencing this menacing of his opposers, and he wants God to deliver him. David, as the present or future king of Israel, as he writes, is getting opposition. It is getting attacks from his enemy. David, of course, is or will be the anointed leader of Israel, the children of Yahweh. And these opposers of his, whether they're from inside the camp or outside, seek his demise. The, the wording here, verses 1 to 5, is graphic. It's undeniable. The, these people are evildoers. They're violent. They're schemers. They're provocative. They're slandered. They're arrogant. And they want to find any and every way in order to trip David up and bring him down. They want his destruction. They want the destruction of those he leads. In fact, they want to destroy the reputation of Yahweh. We can't verify for sure that David knows their motives, but David is certain that he does, and we take his word for it. Can you and I relate to this? At one level, the answer is no. We're not the anointed leader of God's people. We're not the king. We don't live in Israel 3,000 years ago in a theocracy. We don't live under the same covenant that God had with his people and with David. We don't face the same kinds of persecution and injustice and hatred that David faced. David is unique. But in another sense, for sure we can relate. Because we're the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. 
In the New Testament, it calls us a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God. We're children of the king, the scriptures tell us. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, princes and princesses in God's family. And we have people, we have individuals, we have whole systems that sometimes array themselves against us. Maybe you felt that. Does that idea surprise you that in the year 2020, there are people in opposition to God's people? We're living in a time in which opposition to those who represent the God of the Bible seems to be increasing, making many of us uh, persona non grata, unwelcomed people where we are. There are many examples of that. We see that increasingly in the courts, in politics, in issues of life and of human sexuality and of religious liberty and witness. There are people who would like to cancel us. And we feel it. For David, this isn't just a plea for the people of God. It's also deeply personal. David feels personally attacked. He feels vulnerable. He feels threatened. Look at the language here in verses 1 to 5. Lots of me and I language. David isn't some kind of disembodied person or robotic existence. David felt fear and opposition and, and hatred. David felt threatened, alone, angered. David trusted God and was frustrated with God at the same time. Can you relate? David wants God to mete out justice and to punish his enemies according to David's timetable, and so do we. Question is, should we pray this way? And the answer, a bit, is probably not as a first response, but given persistent injustice, perhaps. Look here, David was, was genuinely rightly upset with what he thought others were getting away with. David wanted God to put an end to it, to stop them. David wanted justice, not just for himself, but he wanted justice for God. God, your reputation's on the line. You can't just overlook this, can you? David wanted the holiness of God, the character of God to be vindicated. David is experiencing here what many call righteous indignation. Have you ever felt it? It's more than just a, a, an exasperation, a, an anger at life. Righteous indignation is a refusal to accept injustice. And we can know for sure that our anger and indignation is righteous when it's directed at the same things that make God angry. But we need to check our attitude and our response to make sure that those are aligned. Do we hate the evil that God hates? See, David wants God to respond to the evil that he sees around him. He wants God to see the reality and to act. And at the same time, David communicates his trust in God. Look at verses 6 and 7 where he expresses confidence in God's protection. Psalms are very compelling because they're so very personal. The, the, the psalmists speak out of lived reality, not a set of abstractions, but personal reality for them. Look at his language there. 
In verses 6 and 7, David speaks of my God, my cry, my deliverer, my head. This is a relationship with God that's direct, that's dynamic, that's deferential. David speaks with God as if he knows him. Strange, isn't it? As if God is not an abstract idea, but a person. A person named Yahweh who is covenanted with him and with his people. David claims God not as an abstraction, but as his own, as their own, as his people. As if God is with them and for them. David reminds himself of that and tells God. Let me ask you this morning, can you speak to God like that? The answer is, if you know God through Jesus Christ, you can and you should. You can speak to God in very personal terms. You can call out to God for help and mercy. You can depend on God for deliverance and for power. You can count on God for protection and for defense. Whatever David was facing, and we don't know all the details, he was absolutely confident that God was on his side, that God was aware and God could be involved. He trusted God, he believed God, and he submitted his life to God. Do you? Do I tell God that I trust him? Do I tell others that I trust God? In this uh, time of the coronavirus, let me ask you, do you regularly tell others that your God has this pandemic under control? In this time of political turmoil, do you believe that God is in charge and you tell others that no mistakes will happen? In this time of economic, maybe financial uncertainty, do you live without anxiety and fear? Because you know that your God cares for you. In this time of stress for all of us, and we feel it, do you cast your cares upon God knowing that he cares for you? See, the example here of David is profoundly important for us. He's not just interested in God seeing and God knowing, he's interested in God acting for him as his good God and acting against those who are opposed to God. David wants God to defend his name and defend his fame. In the third section of our psalm here, beginning in verse 8, we see David's prayer for punishing the wicked. Now David gets into the explicitly imprecatory part of the psalm. He calls God to mete out justice. He starts reasonably enough in verse 8. Look there. This is something we can all embrace. We don't want God to let wickedness go unchallenged. We don't want wrongdoers to succeed. We pray against evil because we know God's character. But too many people, including too many Christians, are too certain that they know what true justice is. And many of us can be wrong. We have this strange, reoccurring tendency to conflate our conception of justice with God's. You know what I mean? Often, though, our conception of justice is simply what makes us comfortable or what's convenient in life. And the only way to know the difference is when we immerse ourselves in the scriptures so that we know the character of God. If you want to know what justice is, you will be immersed 
in the scriptures that speak of a just God. Beginning in verse 9, David begins to accelerate. He calls on God to lay low the proud, to take the slander of their lips, and to submerge them in their own words. David wants their speech to do them in, to catch them in their own net. And which of us cannot relate? Because when we hear something said about us or against us, something that's patently untrue or unfair or unkind, we want that person to pay for it, don't we? I distinctly remember an occasion uh, a number of years ago when somebody said something publicly that was mean and laughably untrue. And it was about me and several leaders in our church. And as soon as I heard it, I, I did this kind of internal double take. Not only because it was utterly false, but because he had said it out loud and clearly believed it. He wanted to undermine some leaders in our church and to do our church harm. And I only wish that it had been recorded at the time. Fortunately, he was unwise enough to repeat it in another group context, which was part of the undoing. You've probably experienced something similar. That's what David seeks here. He wants the slander of others to hang them, so to speak, with their own words. Now David gets into imprecatory fifth gear, verses 10 and 11. He calls for God to scorch the heads of the evildoers as if with burning coals. He calls for their condemnation. He calls for God to permanently suppress them and isolate them. David uses very blunt terms here to ask God to punish his enemies in climactic ways, to protect the land that God had given to them to bring disaster on those who want to injure, who want to destroy God's chosen one. David has reached the end of his rope, the end of his patience, the end of his compassion. And he wants God to reach the end of his too. Let's be honest. Who of us can't relate to this? We're, we've come to our wit's end about people who seek to ruin our lives or or our security, or shame our faith, or mock God. The question is, is David allowed to pray like this? Does God approve of this? Those aren't easy questions. Some wise biblical minds can help us understand. Authors of an Old Testament theology text, Andrew Hill and John Walton, say this. Listen, these Psalms are not the oracles of God. They are Israel's response to God's revelation emerging from the painful realities of human life. And they open up a window into the souls of the psalmists. These words of the psalmist are often natural and spontaneous, though not always pure and good, and yet they reflect the intimacy of the relationship between the psalmist and God. We see here the psalmist appealing to the character of God, knowing that God is jealous for his name, for his fame. And that the wickedness of the desires, the plans of the ungodly people, is repugnant to the holiness of God. That God's whole nature pledges him to oppose, not to further the schemes of his enemies. David prays like this and offers us to do the same. God, defend your name. Resist injustice. Bring fairness to the world. 
when we peek ahead to some places in the New Testament, we see a similar kind of jealousy for God's name and for God's plan. For instance, several places, the Apostle Paul prays a kind of imprecation on those who oppose God. 2 Timothy 4.14 says this, Paul writes, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Paul has harsh words for his detractors and for detractors of the gospel. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, speaking of those who have distorted the gospel, Paul writes, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. A mild rebuke, right? As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than that which you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So it wasn't just the psalmist who prayed these imprecatory psalms, but even Paul had imprecatory language for those who opposed God. But they both knew, the psalmist and David, that God saw and that God would act. And so they rested in the justice of God. Do you? Fourth and final point in our passage here, David displays confidence in fatherly care, in God displaying his fatherly care. David began with a prayer which worked into an expression of confidence. He prayed again the imprecatory section, which ends in an expression of confidence. And this is a model for us. Our prayers should be balanced. Requests that are accompanied by appreciation. Complaints alongside expressions of confidence in God. David knew that. He knew God. He knew Yahweh. And he knew that God would make things right. And this kind of honesty from the psalmist is an important model for us. It allows us to recognize our problems and our frustrations while giving God the space to solve them. David knew that God was in control. David knew that wickedness wouldn't win forever. David knew that God, in the end, will balance the books, that no one will ultimately get away with anything. Do you believe that? That no one will ultimately get away with anything. David was certain that God saw and that in the end, God would bring judgment on those who opposed him. The challenge for us is to grasp this when we don't yet see the final evidence of God's justice. David says, God, I know that you will care for those who are overlooked and taken advantage of. That was the reality for poor people in David's day. They were manipulated. They were abused for their labor. That bothered David, and it should bother us. That God would care for those who are needy, who can't care for themselves, who were neglected, who were forgotten because they didn't have access to power. They didn't have access to resources to care for themselves. They were left to fend for themselves. That bothered David, and that should bother us. David was confident, though, that God saw, that God was involved, and that if God was committed in the abstract to people who were in need that God was committed in the concrete 
in David's life. Do you believe that God sees in your life the unfairness, the injustice that you experience? In the last verse here, there's a bit of self-talk from David, reminding him what he believes about God. That in the face of persecution, in the face of injustice and mistreatment and evil people, David takes heart. David would praise God's name. David would embrace God's presence. David would not live as if he was alone or abandoned by God because he knew he wasn't. I'm reminded of the story in the New Testament, Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas were unjustly accused of bearing witness to Jesus in some kind of terrible way. They were thrown into prison. They were there at midnight. They were shackled. They had every human reason to be frustrated, ticked off, and angry at God. You think, God, that we should be here when we testify to your son? Come on. Remember what Paul and Silas were doing? They were singing psalms of praise at midnight because they knew their God saw. And do you remember what happened? They had one of the greatest witnessing opportunities in all the New Testament when the jailer and his family said, what's going on here and what must I do to be saved? What do you have when you can praise God in the midst of terrible circumstances? Is anybody watching your life to see how you respond in that way? Psalm 140 concludes on this exemplary note that God's in control and we can trust him even when we're anxious or frustrated. And David shows us how. But still we're left with some vexing questions here as like this. Can we pray like this? It, are the imprecatory psalms a model for us or just something to leave in the past? Let's conclude with some guidance in applying these imprecatory psalms for us. The, the biggest challenge for us is what we read in a number of places in the New Testament. Well, we ask ourselves, don't Jesus and his followers give us a different ethic than the one that David speaks of? For instance, Romans chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Same chapter, Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy or boast is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. All told, we put these, these verses together, these passages in the New Testament together, and they push back some on the, well, the psalmist prayed for the demise of his enemies, therefore I can too. 
They, they restrain us a bit from condemning other people of a different faith or ethnicity or political party or set of values or morality, those that we think are opposed or different than us. No, Jesus raises the standard of how we view God and how we view our enemies. Not because God has changed, he hasn't. Not because justice is no longer needed, it is. But we realize this side of the cross that God is doing something even bigger. You remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12? Verse 11 starts out, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? There is indeed, friends, a war between good and evil, between Satan and Christ. People are morally responsible for where they align themselves, but they're also taken captive. And so we should view them as much with compassion as we do with conflict. We call on God to judge rather than us against his enemies rather than necessarily ours. And most vitally, we seek their conversion. William Ross writes, when making specific imprecation, we must always balance Father, save the lost with Father, pour out your wrath on evil. In fact, one of our really good study Bibles, the ESV study Bible, says it like this. Christians must keep as their deepest desire, even for those who mean harm to the church, that others would come to trust in Christ and love his people. Hence, when they pray, when we pray for God to protect his people against our persecutors, we should also be explicit in asking God to lead people to repentance. So what do we conclude? How do we understand? How do we imply the imprecatory psalms? How do we advocate for justice in our day? Conclude with these three thoughts from that same author, scholar William Ross. Number one, we should guard against overemphasizing the place of these psalms in the Christian life. It'd be very tempting for all of us to make our prayers primarily imprecations on other people. But our mission is to care for souls by taking the gospel to the nations. Number two, when we find imprecation in the scripture, and we do, it's not triumphalistic. It's not gloating. We acknowledge before God our impotence and that we are participants in the persecuted body of Christ. Part of our calling is to be persecuted. Number three, when we pray the imprecatory Psalms, we're not necessarily asking God to execute final judgment, which will only come at the return of Christ. We're asking God in the now to somehow give us strength and to resist what's wrong. We saw this in the Lament Psalms last week. We see it again here today. We show our trust when we call out to God in the midst of difficulty and even injustice. The psalmist models that when we're disheartened, when we're angry, when we're frustrated. When we say to God, you know what's right and true and good. We honor God and we place our trust in him. 
We're called to show trust in our time now and to seek justice in God's time whenever he brings that to pass. Because we believe that Father knows best and that in this very unjust world that he will bring about justice in his time. Yes, we should seek justice. Yes, we should oppose evil. Yes, we believe God is in control and that he sees us and that he sees me. Let's pray. God, thank you for your scriptures, the ones that are easy to understand and the ones that are harder, the ones that are easy to follow and the ones that are challenging. Thank you that you invite us as your people to be transparent, authentic with you. Thank you that you know that we live in an unjust world and that we experience injustice in our lives and as we watch others. Help us to run to you, not from you, and to ask you not for our sake, but for your sake to make all things right and to make your name great for all to see. Give us the patience and the persistence to live that out in these days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.